Hey everybody, welcome to Public Access America's Just the Tip. tip. Ooh, just the tip. Um, when playing Metro Exodus, uh, definitely make sure that you stock up on as much uh, materials as possible to make ammo and clean your weapons. Uh, because... Let's let's be real honest. Metro is a really fun game, and most people don't tend to think about like figuring out like how you're going to be able to sustain combat. And it's kind of funny because like as I've been playing Metro Exodus and looking at how things have gone in Ukraine, I'm like, man, this this there's something about this that feels a little too like close real, right? to what's happened. Oh. And so like you know, resource management is really important in the game, and being uh, making sure that you have the resources that you need to sustain the fight is really important in Metro Exodus, but just in general. It is time now for something positive. We might be headed to the promised land of speaking the truth and finding our external liberty once we internally liberate ourselves. Problem can only be solved when there is a kind of coalition of conscience. Of conscience. Because conscience. that is how it works. This is the beginning, it is not the finale, and that's why we're here. And that's why we rally, 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 rally. We've got to be that creative minority. Creative minority. Creative minority. A way to get in the way. I got in trouble. It was good trouble. It was necessary trouble. Frankly, I know we've got to do something. Nope, I'm glad I've never had. Nope. 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 Hey, we're back at Public Access America. Don't forget, you can find our podcast anywhere you find our favorite podcast, and you can find a live stream just like this one on YouTube for now, 11 a.m. Wait, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Central, 7 p.m. Europe. Let's give a shout out to Earkick. Hey, we had somebody reach out. I was born this gay. A new podcast uh, reached out on Red, oh, nice. on Red Circle. This guy, he is an expert in lgbt history in russia in america Ooh, wow yeah i'm in russia even he has that's really cool his first episode is the um uh the hero of the fall of russia and he he was a gay guy and i'm i'm excited to actually listen i put it on because they sent us a request hey where are you dan we're just pausing waiting for you He's muted. What's there up, folks? Yeah, I'm, just, I'm just letting you guys riff. Can you guys hear me okay? Yeah. Yeah. We got you. Yay. And I, right. I, that's a new logo since the last time I've been on. Yes, sir. We, can one of got... you, you guys move your head so I can see the whole thing? Yep. <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> I like that. We wanted to get the politics out of it. You know, people are tired of politics. So, And we're on episode 750. So oh, it's Lord. about... <laughs> You know, we want to be the podcast that advocates, not the podcast that discusses things that sound political, you know? For sure. Mm -hmm. I love it. I love it. Love the logo. Nice and simple and effective. I'm a big fan of that. And we were, in our last episode, we were talking about education and communication and, you know, getting, getting experience 
education through experience, getting it through academia and how we all need to work together. And we actually called you out because you wanted to be the communication in there. And that was the missing link between all of it. Cause we decided that academia needs to work with people to create better, you know? Oh, I, I'm, I will, I will rant about that for about four hours if you want me to, <laughs> but I completely oh, agree. Yeah. I think the, the integration of academia into society is, is long overdue. Um, okay. there's, there's a, there's a reason behind the ivory tower and I'm happy to chat about that, but just in general, I really like the idea of rebranding to be more education advocacy, bringing people together focus. I think that's a really good idea. Me too. I want, I want more informed voices and experts offering their perspective so that we can come up with diverse solutions. And I'm just going to kind of leave you two to talk about it. Cause last time you two were together, it was one of the greatest conversations I've gotten to listen to, you know? So I'm going to, I just have fun. I I don't, I, I messaged Dan and I was like, what should we talk about? And he's like, I'll be there. And I messaged Jeffrey and he was like, oh, hell yeah, Dan's going to be there. And I was like, I don't know what you're going to talk about. And he's like, I don't care. <clears throat> so I, I can't, you, you know, I can't even imagine to guess at what you two would want to talk about, but what's important to you, Dan, what's on, what's top of your mind this week? Uh, top of my mind this week. That's yeah. really interesting. There's been a lot going on. I think it's been uh, interesting because for the first time in probably over two years, the top news cycle has not been COVID. And that doesn't mean that COVID's gone away by any stretch, but it's it's definitely gotten more manageable, um, and we definitely have a better handle on it. And my my good friends who work in you know hospital infection control and you know government epidemiology, right there, there's a lot more confidence going around right now. But just seeing how the the news cycle has shifted away from domestic health to foreign policy has been kind of an interesting shift and in it i don't want to say back to normal because there's nothing normal about what's happening in, in eastern europe right now and uh, all the all the machinations in ukraine with russia and and how nato is responding and all of that but it's just weird because i've been so used to waking up in the morning and just the first thing that and the only thing people talk about is just covid 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 and it's interesting to have that shift in perspective and how that reflects kind of our shifted priorities and concerns as a country. Um, but I really, honestly, like you said, what do we want to talk about? I was like, I'll just be there and show up. So I'm happy to, to just riff it. on anything. But that's kind of where I've been reflecting. It's like, wait a second, there's there's things besides COVID. Yeah. Even though COVID is still there, how do we now this post-pandemic shift that we're having, how we're going to kind of balance our, rebalance our priorities moving forward? But do you, either one Ooh. of you feel a PTSD about the COVID times. I, when I thought about having you on, I remembered you starting as a contact tracer in Pennsylvania. You know, I think about oh, everywhere yeah. Dan has been in this pandemic. And I think to my, and I went, I tried watching a South Park episode and it was about masks. I turned it off. I had this weird buzzing in my brain that said, I don't want to relive that. Yeah. I, 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 I don't want to say PTSD, but there's definitely you know, behavioral and emotional spurs that I get from the whole process. So for example, like you mentioned, I started out in contact tracing, um, but then I moved up into just full on outbreak investigations at the peak of the pandemic in, in December, 2020 with a pre Delta um, in the first winter that we had with full winter we had with COVID. I was working as a local government epidemiologist where I was the on-call guy for 14 different nursing homes dealing oh. with outbreaks. I worked overtime on Christmas Day because that's how me slammed everyone was. It was really, really bad, right? Yeah. And, you know, working a lot of time. And 
just kind of coming back out of that, you know, I, I've, I've stepped away from that and gone and done other things as well. But I think just having the time to reflect on that, it's like, there's been a lot of changes in my perspective. Um, and I think one thing that I've gotten, I'm, I'm very grateful for is that I've become a little more healthily skeptical and critical of certain things in public health. I'm not in any sense, like I'm, I'm definitely supportive of vaccination and, you know, good infection control and masking. Like there's all kinds of evidence for that. But I think what's been really good is going through a really <clears throat> serious, you know, coming out of education and applied research and getting into the meat and potatoes of actual like public health emergency response. It's been interesting to see and reflect on how we can do better, not just, I mean, everyone talks about the government and, you know, Trump or Biden or like the top levels, but how can we as a system, you know, try and debrief what we can do. And now we finally have the breathing room to do that. Um, because mm -hmm. even though COVID is not going away, and like I said in previous episodes, it's never going to go away. It's always going to be endemic. It's always going to be a public health concern we have to deal with. Um, but we now have the space and the management techniques and the kind of low prevalence that we can start thinking about how we can retool for the next one, because there will be a next one, like I've said before. So I, I think like to summarize that rant, it's like, I'm gl I went through the experience. I saw a lot of stuff. I have a lot of names of dead people tattooed into my brain from it. Cause that's what my job was in many ways was helping all the situation and now having the chance to reflect i had a chance to reflect while covid was still the main news cycle while i wasn't working directly in public health but now i have the chance to reflect even more now that it's not even the primary news cycle anymore and it's just like another mm -hmm. stage of separation and kind of feeling out who i've become after that ordeal but that's kind of where i'm at what do you guys think well, that that actually kind of moves into where uh, where I'm at because, like you said, we're you know it's not even the main news cycle. And from a data perspective, you know, one of the headlines that I've kind of seen pop up is, you know, the the media keeps popping up with you know the BA two subvariant of Omicron and how oh my God it's become the it's become the predominant strain in the U.S. But as a data person, I'm looking at the data that exists, and even though it's become the predominant strain during that time cases just keep going down and so it's like one of those things where it's like mathematically speaking <clears throat> like and and scientifically speaking yeah ba2 probably competes better uh versus you know you know ba1.1 and then the original omicron strain but at the same time those strains spread so fast that there might not necessarily be a lot of places left for ba2 to compete yeah, no, I think I, you're absolutely right. I think it's important to consider, and I think we've talked about this in, in different chunks and different previous episodes that I've been on, but thinking about the, the, the evolution of, of infectious diseases is always based on the ecological niche that they can fill. And after every round of infection, there's a different series of niches that can be filled that depend on host immunity, the environmental conditions, and the actual agent itself, right? We always think about that as like the, epi, the epidemiologic triad, host, agent, and environment. Those are the three major factors that you know, affect the spread or the severity of disease. And every kind of cycle that we have with COVID, there are new circumstances that the virus the virus has to navigate. And so that drives evolution. It's not a conscious process, but yeah, mm -hmm. 
right now that ecological niche with the temp environment temperatures getting warmer more people are spending time outside you know that's happening uh our immunity is catching up not just because vaccinations you know continue to grow but more you know naturalized immunity which is kind of probably shorter term and not as effective but it's better than nothing and people are getting boosted and now with the fda authorizing an, a second booster shot for people age 50 and older right there's all kinds of these different environmental changes and and the best that we can hope for is that it continues to kind of force the virus into a niche that is not really major. That doesn't mean that the virus itself is, is not deadly, but as long mm -hmm. as we can continue on this path, it'll continue going down. Now we're going to continue having cycles. I'm sure there's going to be spikes after major events. We're going to have an up in cases like after Memorial day and, and uh 4th of July. And it's definitely in the winter, just like we're, we've been noticing for the right. past couple of years, but you know, now we can start having the realistic conversation of, of at a public health level, how much do we need to dedicate to it? And then having those difficult discussions of saying, well, you know, Omicron BA.2 can still cause severe disease and the people still being hospitalized and people are immunocompromised, right? We need to be protective and supportive of those people. But, you know, what is the balance? And it's kind of the, what's that quote from, is it the the imitation game, the, the the one about Alan Turing and the Enigma machine, the starring Benedict Cumberbatch, mm -hmm. is like the blood soaked calculus, like that's kind yep. of the that's a lot of like public health response. It's like what what is what do we need to invest in order to cover the most number of people, knowing that we're not going to catch everybody, and how do we kind of reckon with ourselves that we're not going to catch everybody or protect absolutely everyone because we just physically can't. We what what do we do for mitigation? Right, right. and so. And that's the other question is, is that, you know, right now, especially in the, in the, in this moment, we have more tools available to us than we ever have before. You know, you've got, um, you've got the shots that exist currently. You've got Omicron specific boosters that are, that are being developed. And it sounds like they're going to be, uh, potentially deployed. I know that they initially worked on Delta ones, but it was kind of one of those things where they figured out that there was enough, uh, there wasn't enough change that, you know, having a Delta specific booster was worthwhile, but Omicron perhaps. Um, <clears throat> you've got uh, the Paxlovid protease inhibitor. You've got uh, monoclonal antibodies uh, prior and now specific to Omicron. Uh, it's we have more tools in the toolbox now than we ever had before. And so like, for example, I was doing some math, you know, I was doing some calculations looking at like, you know, here's what the risk of hospitalization and death looks like after three shots. You know, here's what it looks like if, you know, if you get, if you have the shots, but then you end up, you know, needing Paxlovid. Um, here's what that risk then multiplies down to. And if you're still not doing well, like we have monoclonal antibodies. And if, you know, you end up getting that, you know, mathematically speaking, it's like a 0. 0.00018 or no 0.0018% chance that you end up dead is the way that I did the math based off of the available data. And so realistically speaking, you have something that's gone to, you know, quite literally what, you know, a lot of people said is potentially less deadly than the flu. But that said, what do you think makes sense in terms of like how we look at, you know, treating with the tools that we have now? I first want to say that this is the end, this is kind of the end state that a lot of people were kind of focusing on for a while, like where we're at right, right. now. It's like, how do we get the whole flatten the curve that all that stuff, which I I still say that should have been the slogan that should have been painted in every building and, and on every PSA, mm -hmm. flatten the curve, flatten the curve for years, right? 
right? Well, this is finally at the point where the curve is being flattened, <laughs> right? And we're like, right. oh crap, now what do we do? It's like, because we've been, the, all the mitigation measures and all the emergency response and health protocols that we've had have been because we did not have this barrage or this, this armory of tools to come to prevent and control and treat these diseases, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's just important for us to reflect on that. But in terms of what we can do, I think it's, I think, and this goes back again, I keep saying what I've said before, what I said before, right? The the cultural changes that happened during COVID, there are definitely things that we should continue uh, supporting uh, mm-hmm. in terms of a public health standpoint. First of all, staying home if you're sick. I mean, that should never, ever come back. Like why we accepted that as a society is just, you know, think even now, absolutely beyond me, right? Having hand sanitizer right. and hand and hand hygiene stations and all these places that we, in, in, in public we can do, right? But in terms of how we're treating, we now have pretty robust understandings of which treatments are effective, which, you know, and for what purposes and for what, you know, what levels. And so now we're at a point where federal agencies and state public health authorities that have been giving this emergency guidance can now shift their focus into saying, here are some clinical recommendations for, you know, these combinations of certain things, right? So now we're actually shifting away from trying to do our best guess based on what we had in the past for other diseases. And now knowing enough about COVID that, like you said, we have all these tools, but we also know how to use them. So having the agencies that are involved in public health emergency response and preparedness, like all the same ones that are just involved in general public health, reshifting their focus to clinical considerations, indications, contraindications, right? Going back to what they were doing, you know, I don't want to say antebellum, but anti-pandemicum or whatever, yeah. right? So this is, we're kind of reaching back to normal. It's like now we have a good grip on it. So I, I in terms of how should we do it, we should trust the authorities that have done their best to navigate through this really nasty crisis. And now we have data from a large number of really good medical scientists who have been publishing this. So that's kind of my general comment rather than saying, you know, I don't want to, because I'm not a clinical pharmacist. I'm not a board certified physician. I'm not going to comment on specific combinations, but we do have this body that we can rely on now that we've been hoping to have for more than two years. And now we finally have it to proceed with. Thank you to everybody in the daisy chain that got us to where we are. That shouldn't that shouldn't pass by without a big thank you to you and everyone mm-hmm. like you that's that got us here. Thank you. Yeah, it was it was it was so a slog for a lot of people. It, and it's not well, said it's, enough. Yeah. It's not said enough because the science is messy and learning is messy. But we know more by doing that than we did by ignoring tests. Mm-hmm. You remember when it was herd immunity and stop testing people? We wouldn't have known anything. We'd still be in the dark ages. So it's it's people like Jeffrey, people like Dan, their associates, the people they work with, the people they fought for that actually made the difference that got us to an endemic stage. And to reflect back on Jason, of course, like the people who were willing to continue having the uh, the uh, the platforms for us to talk about these things and to continue mm-hmm. to encourage the process, you know, while we were all wrestling with all this as a you know scientific entity or scientific bodies, right? Having the the ability for us to kind of share and, and continue to have the patience of the public and the the media and the providers of 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 the the platforms that we needed in order to not just find things out, but disseminate that. Like I said, communication, like that's the most important part. What's the point of having all the knowledge if you don't share it? We need people like you, Jason, and and a lot of other folks involved who are going to continue caring about public health, even though 
it's easy to say, oh, COVID's over. It's like, no, it's not over, but there's always going to continue to be public health needs. And hopefully right. that's going to be another change in our society that we, we continue to give public health issues the credence that they deserve rather than just having them be kind of like a flashy like a new study proves that wine doesn't cause cancer right no let's let's uh, let's increase the quality of our science communication permanently just as we are increasing our you know availability of hand sanitizer and the concept mm-hmm. of people staying home and the people like i am sick is a completely reasonable thing for someone to not come to do something right that's right it's, it's it, it has to be paired together and those are you know the preventative measures that are going to take mm-hmm. us a long way rather than <clears throat> just relying on oh they'll find a new drug eventually <laughs> so i got i got two questions for you dan the first yeah. one is i one that you probably you might not necessarily be able to give an answer to but it seems like we we've now shifted towards endemic care of the virus. You know, a lot of places are kind of doing that across Europe and it, that's what it feels like is, is that we understand that we're going to live with the virus. We have a bunch of tools. Uh, some countries have said, yes, we're switching to an- endemic care. We haven't exactly come out and said that yet either, and, but it really does feel like that's where we're headed with the, the relaxing of masking, you know, mandates, the, the acknowledgement that we have all of these tools ending uh, title for 42 example, the, by the way as well ending title 42 uh the whole test to test to receive packs of it at a local pharmacy all of these kind of things that are you know just kind of seem like we're we're moving away from this idea of this being a pandemic into treating it endemic like the flu virus like uh, influenza yeah, no, you're absolutely right. That's that is honestly where we're at. And some people are not going to be willing to come out and say that because for a number of reasons. One, um, I think a, a lot of the feedback, some folks who are kind of excessively critical of the process will be like, see, see, it's all it's all resolved, it's all fine. You know, you you just made a whole thing, you want to make this permanent, right? Come up with all this unfair criticism of saying, Well, you guys all did all this stuff and for the last two years and it was all bullshit, right? No, it wasn't. It but wasn't. I think if if someone comes up and says, you know, hey, we're now in an endemic stage, I think a lot of people who were will say negative things about the last two years and and public opinion will drop in like, well, really, we just got here anyways, not understanding kind of how the epidemiology works. Um, but you're definitely right. We are at that stage. And I think what happens now, just kind of comparing that to how we manage infectious diseases of other types that are either endemic or kind of sporadic, where they, they pop up every once in a while in certain places, um, a lot of the uh, care, you know, would that I could should be focusing on uh, targeting high-risk individuals, making sure that they have access to the supplies and the preventive care that they need. Um, vaccine distribution in this country is still very uneven. Um, so they'll like working on those. And these are the same things that we work on for like influenza vaccination mm-hmm. rates or right. you know, surve- disease surveillance in, um, in communities where surveillance is a challenge for all kinds of reasons, right? It's going to shift it already has shifted mainly with COVID more towards treating COVID as, I don't want to say another disease, but another disease, right? We, we Mm -hmm. have systems in place where we do this. I think just what I'm hopeful for is that the publicity of the last couple of years will continue a push saying, Hey, these are things that we need to fund because an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure just for whatever it is, whether it's a coronavirus, if it's influenza, if it's tuberculosis, whatever it is. Right. right. So I, it really is, that is where we're at. Um, I'm just hoping that we're at 
you know, pre-pandemic 2.0, where we know what's going on and we have greater attention and greater care and just greater societal acceptance and endorsement of infection control practices that will be a little bit more safe. And next time, with next time we'd have a pandemic, you know, not having a chronic shortage of toilet paper and bleach and, and hand sanitizer, <laughs> because now and we hot pockets. Because now we know how people are going to respond when there's a once in a lifetime pandemic, which will be in the next 10, 15, 20 years. We you mark my words, right? How do we prepare the supply chains to manage that? How do we make sure that policies right. that, you know, what what are some of the policies that we realized were very intimately linked with the pandemic response? You know, yeah. how do we make sure that there's proper internet access for people who need to work remotely if they need to work from home, right? All these things that we found out along the way, now we're at a point of like recovery. And it just goes mm-hmm. through like, you know, that we were, there was a preparedness stage, then there was an impact stage where COVID hit. Now we've been in like response mode and now we're kind of shifting to like the final mode of like emergency management, which is like recovery. And analyzing it. That's what I love about it. We know yeah. so much about pandemics now and people's yeah. responses to them. For sure. The now, after action, here's... the after action review is what is happening now yeah. and what we I, need to work on. I just wish there was more books about that than there was about Donald Trump's presidency. <laughs> you know what I mean? We well, should, yeah, I you wish gotta see, you got to yeah. see who, what will sell though. Right. That's, that's unfortunate. Yeah. But yeah. That, that is unfortunate. You know, I, now, I, I now wish we could teach people two. to read beyond the headline. I'm sorry, Jeffrey, go ahead. Oh, it's all right. No. So here's question number two. So um, now, now I'm going to dig into public health brain, Dan. Oh, um, yeah. <clears throat> yay. So, you know, over the course of the pandemic, one of the things that we learned from a technological standpoint was is that the ability to work from home, one well once thought of as a was a uh, you know a pipe dream, you know, became a reality. But like you said, this idea of stay home if you're sick, you know, one of the things that we have, you know, the biggest issue of is number one access to uh, sick leave. I would say if, for a lot of people, but also number two, I think you have a lot of companies that are seeing this idea of, you know, return to office and that you're never going to have the need to work from home again. There's there's a lot of companies out there that have said, no, we're just going to go totally remote. We don't, you know, we don't have to deal with all the overhead. But from a public health standpoint. Do you think that there would be viable guidance in how, let's say, you might not necessarily, you know, you kind of solve two problems. Number one, you might not necessarily have companies increasing sick leave, but have a policy that increases their ability to allow people to work from home if they're sick. Because let's face it, I have, I'm the kind of person who has always worked sick. It's just what I do. It's I'm miserable anyways. I might as well be miserable and not have to deal with an entire day of catching up on emails. Yeah. Well, I think that's, and this is where you start getting into public health law and policy and what is the lane of different agencies getting involved, right? The CDC is not just this catch-all for everything that related to health and disease, right? There are certain things that they are and are not allowed to do, just like certain state health departments, just like, you know, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, right? So now in terms of, you know, are you going to make a recommendation when people continue to work from home, right? I think that's completely fair for some entity to come out and say, look, a there is evidence showing that, you know, work from home and allowing work restrictions for people who are ill um, is an effective way to control disease in workplaces, right? We have, you know, plenty of data on that, right? And that, that's an important facilities. thing to do. That's something we should focus on. Yeah. And there's definitely recommendations that can be made at state and federal levels to support that. But 
how does that get translated into policy? And is it the role of the federal government and is it the role of public health agencies to try and institute policy saying you have to allow for you know, work from home? Whose authority is that? And that answer gets messy, mm-hmm. right? We talked in a previous episode about um, how the Supreme Court shot down the vaccine, the federal vaccine mandate, because right. the mandate was structured to be, you know, OSHA making it. But then the argument that one was ultimately, well, COVID is not exclusively a workplace hazard exposure thing. So you you can't just have OSHA regulate something that's like outside of the workspace, right? OSHA has a lane. Right. One can debate what the width of that lane is, right? Just like the CDC has a lane, just like the, you know the FDA has a lane. Um, so, in terms of adding those restrict uh, those recommendations, I think it's completely reasonable for those recommendations to come into play because they exist. But now it comes mm-hmm. into this interesting question of like with American society, we do have a little bit more laissez-faire, you know, regulatory agencies as compared to say a lot of Western European or Central European countries, you know look at what's happening with the workforce now, right? The workforce mm-hmm. is making a lot of these demands. And, you know, the, what was the, what people calling it the great resignation as uh-huh. a yep. great recession, right? You know, now you're starting, to, I'm walking around, I'm seeing Chipotle offering $15 an hour minimum with 401ks, right? How right. much does the workforce have to play in forcing prospective employers that are hurting for personnel to say, yeah, let's do it hybrid. And also, was it was it JP Morgan that was like, or is it Chase or... Some 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 bigger banking entity record, said, "Oh, 100% of people have to come back into the office." And then, like, only Goldman Sachs, them, Goldman Sachs, right? And then, and then half of them just didn't, right? You can't, <laughs> lay off, you can't fire half your workforce, right? So I think what's, and this is kind of you know, linking back to our discussion about the policies and the procedures that we didn't really perceive to be part of the pandemic at the first point, at the first stage when we started doing lockdowns, right? Mm-hmm. Supply chain management, personnel management, work from home management, IT management, right? One of those mm-hmm. other things is, you know, the workforce is going to define whether at the end of the day, the workforce is going to define how much you are going to do, <laughs> right? And uh, right. If, if, the, if the American workers are like, yeah, no, screw this. I'm not going to come into work because I have two kids who are immunocompromised. And what's the point of me sitting in an office next to Jerry who's coughs and sneezes all the time and his bouts of COPD-induced, I don't know, asthma spreading my diseases, Right. Oh, Why am I going to do that and then bring that down to you know whoever? Right. You're, there's going to be right. a lot of uh, millions of individual decisions are lining up together in really unprecedented ways, and I think it's sociologically fascinating. But Me too. it so, also plays into: is it the government's job to say certain things and mandate certain things? If so, so which which government agency is responsible? And if not, what can the workers do? to ensure that they have optimal conditions that actually benefit their public health and their preferences. So this is, this is where this gets interesting because like, for example, because I work in risk, one of the things that, you know, risk brain me goes. So if you, you know, you have to be concerned about employee productivity all the time. We think about things like, you know, if, an, if, a, if, if our IT goes down, if we have a DDoS attack, if we have some type of, you know, you know, major event like an earthquake or a tornado or a hurricane or whatever that, you know, compromises our ability to do work. And in a lot of cases, most people don't really think about it, but the cost of productivity during your note and pre-pandemic cold and flu cycles was always really heavy. Why? Because you had a bunch of people starting into rooms. They would ultimately end up getting each other sick and you would just have this rotation throughout your building for a while where you would probably be down anywhere from 10 to 25% of your staff because they're all out sick with the flu. So what we have learned through 
COVID is, is that having work from home protocols, especially as you have someone who is in your building or in your immediate area that gets sick and you get sent home, um, it helps, like, as we all know, it helped contain the spread. So the question then becomes, you know, if you were to issue guidance, you know, obviously it's not something where I think that, you know, public health is going to be able to sit down and, and make the law of you have to offer work from home. But as a way of businesses being able to mitigate risk, showing the data of how having a work from home option as cold and flu season hits, not only number one, you know, reduces the chance that you're going to have multiple staff members out because of illness. But number two, the fact that you're going to be able to keep productivity, there's going to be, I think yeah. there's, there's definitely an avenue for public health to be able to say, look, you know, we can't make a rule, but based off of a lot of observed evidence, here is, here is a type of, here's a, here's a guidance that we would suggest that every business look at and review with all seriousness as number one, it's going to help you in terms of the cost of being able able to keep people uh, in the office and productive just because you won't have them out sick. But also number two, it allows them to have that ability and flexibility to plan uh, in a risk-based environment saying, look, here's what local health guidance is for any number of issues. And this is how we can fit this into our own business plan. It's not a it's not a something that the government is enforcing upon us, but because of the data that's available, it's a solid recommendation that can be made that businesses can plan for and decide on their own whether or not that's something they want to implement. For sure. And that's kind of, you're, you're really nicely setting up the differences between different federal agencies when it comes to these things. So OSHA would definitely be able to, if they wanted to, try to implement certain regulations. And they definitely have updated a ton of regulations regarding like work restrictions related to COVID, but then now kind of shifting more towards the preventative, you know, preparedness side, you know, how does this, are you going to allow for, you know, delay, uh, how, how quickly do you need to update your air ventilation systems or HVAC systems? Because now we know that proper filtration of air and ventilation is effective uh -huh. to control COVID. And we've known for decades that it's, you know, not just COVID, but all, there's all kinds of standards in like operating rooms and healthcare fields for like how you filter your air, right? That's just one of many, a million different examples versus guidance from the CDC that is just general guidance. And then it gets really hairy and interesting because now not only do you have regulations that you have to abide by, but then you have in the world of guidance versus regulation, you have the wonderful beast of the class action lawsuit wherein mm -hmm. a do dozens of workers at a particular location, if they have the ability to do so, who say, okay, they are negligent on, they're falling behind on guidance, right? This, this guidance is not being adhered to, but it's still guidance. They're just being flagrantly unsupportive of us in our public health de desires and demands as a workforce. We're gonna mm -hmm. sue, or we're gonna mass resign, or we're gonna do X, Y, and Z, not because you're violating a law inherently, but because there's so much evidence that you should be doing this. There's no official law. So you say, screw it. You know, where is that boundary? Are you going to have the government come in and, inf and enforce regulations on the business? Or is the business going to shut down because half the workforce leaves because they don't like their employees? And I think one thing that this also ties into, you know, we're talking about cultural changes and, 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 and workforce changes. It really is going to be I, I would hope as a public health specialist and an infectious disease epidemiologist that the number one changes that we would have in our society would be based on purely on disease control. But I genuinely think, you know, my logic American brain, right, as a citizen and as a worker and as an employee, 
I think the number one change that we're going to see culturally after COVID is uh, the en masse by the millions workers saying, why do I have to stand for this shit? Right. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the number one thing that I think is going to in American culture. I think the cultural change is going to be focused on that. And it kind of reflects you, you the, the, the road to progress and innovation in this country and across most of the world is you know, marred by milestones of mass death and chaos. Right. We we jo we like I remember learning in, you know, in high school about what we call the long 19th century. Right. The 19th century, like of American and British and, and European imperialism that didn't end in 1900, but it ended after the First World War and into the Second World War because there was this massive cultural change from the First World War. You know, the women's workforce movement that amplified during the Second World War because, you know, millions of American men were not able to run the factories and everything. And then they came back to, to, to households where the women were like, we've been running our shit for just fine without <laughs> you. So what do we do? Right. So these right. cultural changes that keep happening that are instilled by massive crises involving lots of woe and death and suffering have mm -hmm. been marking our changes in our culture. And I think COVID is already doing exactly that. So now what are we going to see in the next 10 to 15 years as the generation that kind of came of age in the workforce during COVID is, is progressing? Just as we have seen the cultural changes even in the last 20 years of like, well, the great recession that the elder millennials that came of age at that point and started getting blamed for everything under the sun as they were trying to progress into jobs under the great recession, like you go back every major step. I think that's going to be the major change to go to, to, to watch more so than the public health recommendations, which at the end of the day are going to be like, here are things that we already know on a, on a general scale. Here's some more detailed information. Here's a couple more vaccines and therapy therapeutics that we can add to our arsenal and then kind of evolve to hopefully be more high profile as opposed to this massive shift in, in culture that we're, we're thinking about. And so I'm just lab, really, so labor, I don't want to say excited. Oh, I'm just very curious. And like, this is going to be very interesting to watch from a, from a scholarly perspective. I'm sorry, we're, please go ahead, Jason. We're, we're seeing that labor empowerment at Disney right now, where employees are protesting the don't say gay in Florida. We're seeing union unionization in Amazon plants. So we're, we're seeing what you're talking about, you know? Yeah. I think even, what's, even what's, I even I quit my job a couple of weeks ago because I was tired of the way that I was being treated. Right. And I you think know, what, I, what's <clears throat> what's interesting is what Jeffrey was talking about. If we did a study on viruses affecting the workforce and compared that to viruses affecting the infrastructure, cyber, I think we could we could learn that we're losing just as much money on the productivity of people getting sick as we are our our computer systems getting viruses you know yeah and i think now this is going to be and i think the, the point i was leading into was that you know talk about the long 19th century i wonder if we can start thinking about how this is a, a kind of a cultural shift that's reminiscent of, i don't know a long 20th century right we have these amazing the amazing technology of the internet and all this instant communication access to instant information that we have but now you know the office was the office still just instead of having, you know, files and typewriters and 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 Rolodexes, we had a bunch of computers on a bunch of desks. Mm -hmm. Now the workspace is going to look very different because of these demands being enforced upon by the American workforce and folks like Jeffrey who are in risk. You're now going to think, okay, we need to really up our cyber because we don't just have one intranet that we can control. We now have a lot of VPNs, a lot of people remoting in. You know, we're going to have to face these challenges because it's just not going to go away. 
Um, and, and the idea of, you know, do we need to work five days a week? Like I, I tell you the, the job that I left, right. I, I didn't like the way I was being treated, but I was not working 40 hours a week. I was doing what they asked me to do. And I was done. And like, if you actually compiled all of it, I could have done it in two and a half days. And I was just as efficient, you know, more efficient, if anything, than if they brought me into an office. So now that begs the question, do you need me to run your business? If you're going to work me realistically two and a half days, or do you need everyone to be working four days instead of five days? Or are you going to have the size of your workforce? And then what are you going to do with the people who are not going to are not going to be working because they're not needed for companies that are not all of a sudden much more automated and uh, efficient because they don't have to have a bunch of centralized infrastructure, right? All these mm-hmm. questions are going to really come down hard in the next 10, 15 years. And because of the changes that we saw in ourselves and the possibilities that emerged or that we realized were possible because of the forces of the pandemic. And that's how infectious diseases have been since the dawn of time. You know, pandemics have shifted massive, massively shifted cultures. You look to the Black Death in the 1300s and 1400s in the UK, right? You look at the mm-hmm. pandemic influenza in, in the 1900s, right? You know, infectious diseases have always shifted and shaped the course of cultural human history. And we're just living through that latest iteration right now. And it's something that we need to embrace. We don't have to be happy about it per se, but we have to acknowledge that it exists because if we keep denying it, we're going to just keep losing ground. So I I completely agree with what what you guys are saying. There's all kinds of these new challenges and we can't shy away from them because it's not going to stop. It's going to keep going and there's going to be another you know, major shift probably related to some kind of infectious disease pandemic in the next, within our lifetimes. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah. Hmm. So now let's talk about something even more fun. Um, oh, here we go. Because, because, uh, you know, we can't, you know, we really can't ignore what's happening in Eastern Europe and it's been kind of an interesting one, but let's talk about public health and war in Ukraine. I think there's probably, there's probably something to be said about the way, you know, the way that uh, health, you know, the way that you look at health and the way that you look at uh, an active war zone that we don't really talk about, you know, we're, it's been we're on my head actually. Of, I've wondered about that <clears throat> COVID in Ukraine. Why aren't we talking about that? Well, all? not even just COVID in Ukraine. I would say like, you know, what, what are we looking at as, as a whole? Because you do have this mass influx of people into Poland and, and other EU nations, but also too, you know, you start to see other health issues arise when you have, you know, constant bombardment, lack of food, lack of medical supplies, being able to get in. Um, I mean, any number of things. So, so what are you seeing, Dan? Well, let's start off with a bit of dark humor. I saw a really just brutally funny TikTok the other day where um, somebody went on to, you know how Google, you can just do a coronavirus insert place here and you can see the trends because they start dra- drafting it. You do, you do coronavirus Ukraine, right? And all of a sudden it just goes to zero after the invasion. It's like, they saw coronavirus <laughs> getting invaded, right? It's like, absolutely brutal. But, but no, it, it raises a really interesting point is that priorities can really shift uh, when you have major cataclysmic events going on. And for Ukraine, they're literally fighting for the sovereignty of their country. They, they don't, they're probably diverting all the resources they have available away from public health and disease prevention, um, away from those entities more towards um, 
keeping alive and keeping functioning. And I think it's interesting to see that interplay too, but um, it does, it is interesting as well because, you know, public health and sanitation and, and hygiene don't go away when you get invaded. And if anything, uh, they get doubly or triply important, right? You still go back to the civil war, two thirds of the, the two thirds of the casualties in the civil war are from diseases and non-battle injuries or what we call in the military DNBIs, right? Um, we, revolutionary war too, same thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's our revolutionary war, right? 70%, it's 80% were, you know, not from combat, right? If you actually look at the numbers of people who died in the battles in the revolutionary war, they were in the hundreds and most of them. It's like, Obviously tragic, right? But you compare that to the thousands or tens of thousands that you've seen in other wars, right? It's because, you know, you lose half your army on the march through the swamps. Um, but that's exactly what Ukraine is facing right now. It's, that it's They're now facing issues of like, how do you keep the lights on in the hospital while the entire city is getting bombed? That's another part of like, that's something that infectious disease epidemiology and infection control and prevention and preparedness has is intimately involved in. It's just that their priorities have shifted away from, you know, surveillance at a national level and national level distribution of certain things to literally having just the basic functions of society still be there, right? What happens when you've completely destroyed a town and there are 30,000 people in there and there's no functioning sewers, right? It's the same stuff that happened, you know, with Hurricane Katrina, right? Or any of the major hurricanes that hit the American Southeast. Like there's days to weeks sometimes with Katrina, even months where, yeah, you have these really nasty diarrheal diseases, waterborne illnesses, foodborne illnesses. You can't get safe food in there, right? That's where your priorities of public health shift when you have major cataclysmic crises in your area. And unfortunately, Ukraine has been facing that on literally every front that they have. And we don't even know what the numbers of people who've been who've died or been killed either by just direct combat or civilians killed in in, in firefights or war crimes or God knows what's going on. But we the, the what's clear is that Ukraine's infrastructure is absolutely decimated. And with that comes the post impact levels of public health concern or the impacts of public health concern which is often foodborne water diseases if you have a lot of people in shelters respiratory illnesses that you know that thrive in there right so you need public health to maintain itself but you're going to lose out on like the federal surveillance infrastructure which requires a lot of time money infrastructure dedication manpower in order to run that that ukraine just doesn't have the privilege of running right now so that's kind of my general perspective on that so and Russia's mm-hmm. dealing with the same stuff, I'm imagining. You know what I mean? Um, they just left Chernobyl, and we found that they had dug trenches, trenches there so that they could lay in radiated dirt. You know, like, what's going to come out of that? That's what, well, that's what happens. Well, it's it's not so much like the dirt around there is not, they're not, they're not reopening the core, but it also kind of highlights the fact that in terms of their military strategy, they weren't particularly effective at communicating risk, right? Right. And and when in the military, whenever there's, or at least in the army, right, whenever there's a unit that deploys overseas, one of the fundamental things they have to do is first of all make sure everyone's up on their vaccinations and make sure that they have, you know, all their details up. They do pre-deployment screenings and like dental work and physicals. There's all kinds of pre-screenings to make sure that you're not putting people into a remote combat environment where they're going to be out of the fight because of something not related to combat. But also you have to do health threats briefings. You have to make sure that your soldiers or sailors or airmen or Marines or, or guardians, whoever's going where you have to make sure that they are aware of the health threats that they're going to face that are not bullets coming from downrange. 
right. right? You and that's something that clearly either that those groups of soldiers did not pay attention to, or Russia did not heed carefully enough, thinking, oh, whatever, it's it's a it's a loss. But <clears throat> like we said before, the historically the grand majority of casualties in war among fighting armies and navies has been you know the diseases and the non-battle injuries as opposed to direct action so if you just ignore all of that you're only going to weaken your fighting force and as a result be less effective at winning wars and i wonder how much because we don't have a lot of that information right how much of the russian convoy that stopped how much of that was due to like you know, people just weren't prepared. How much of it was due right. to cold weather injury? How much of it was to crappy rations mm. that people got sick on, mm. right? What percentage of the people have they had to pull back on and how much of that has affected their their military strategy right. because they did not do a, a sufficient job in preparing for the diseases and non-battle injuries that plague the fighting force, right? And not to disclose too much information about myself, but this is literally what I do for a living, right? You know, uh, dis- right. controlling and preventing diseases and non-battle injuries is like I'm exceptionally qualified to talk about that without declaring too much. I was just thinking so, about Vietnam and World War II, how venereal diseases almost brought down the army. So it's interesting yeah. to think we don't know what disease is affecting this war. And to find that out later, that would be really interesting yeah. on the I longer mean, timeline, you know? My favorite little factoid that's kind of more relevant, I know World War II is over almost it's like 80 years ago, right? But um, in the, the Sicily campaign, where the United States and the UK invaded Sicily on its way up to capture Italy, there were more hospitalizations among American soldiers for influenza than there were for combat. Interesting. Now, what happens if you have effective respiratory con- disease control, where all of a sudden you more than double your hospital capacity? Now... In terms of as a military commander, you start having very interesting discussions that can open on a table of what is our actual acceptable casualty rate? You know, what, how much forward uh, support infrastructure are we going to need in order to support those casualties? Uh, that, or, or how much, how much can we reduce, how much, uh, uh, support and sustainment can we reduce if we have effective disease control measures? It's a really fascinating concept of war that people don't really appreciate because it's much more interesting to talk about the guns and the bullets and the fighting and the heroism and everything. And I get that, but you know, the sustainment wins wars, right? Yeah. Public access America. It's always funny because, like, especially because as you know, libertarians, we get a ton of shit, even amongst other libertarians. I think political philosophy is a lot like religion and where there's moments you have to go on faith and trust what somebody else is saying. The main the main focus is it's like less dependence on the government because, well, we've seen how that's gone. And you don't have to do that if you think about it in a human way. You know, more dependence on connections with each other. But you can always bring it back to what would one human do for another? What would a hundred do for a hundred? People looking out for people. Find Public Access America anywhere you find your favorite podcast every Sunday and Thursday. And join the chat on YouTube at Public Access America every Sunday, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. Communities looking out for community. Public Access America. History in the making, making history in the making, in the making, in the making, in the making, in the making. You know, and <clears throat> I mean, that's one of the things, you know, I've always heard is, is that, you know, an army fights on their stomach. And, you know, when you think about it, at least from a health perspective, if you're not being fed well, it makes it really difficult to fight off a lot of those infections you might get, you know, when you're 
when your rations are bad and you know you literally just aren't getting the caloric intake that you need in order to keep you know just your 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 normal standards of human functions up that lends to a whole lot of issues that that lends to number one your ability to even fight number two your ability for your immune system to even fight not to mention like you know when you're dealing with extreme external factors like you know when they had that cold snap that you know there haven't been any official numbers but it certainly took a lot of russians out of the fight because they didn't have proper cold weather gear no you're absolutely right and and now you start thinking about it's again it's not just about having the procedure but having the the, the supply and logistics right you know the mm-hmm. there there's a reason why you know there's within the army division structure right there's division mm-hmm. commander who's usually a two-star general and there's two deputy commanders. There's usually a there's a one star who's a deputy commander for uh, maneuver, which is combat, and there's a deputy commander for a sustainment. There's an entire one star general with their own like whole thing. Their focus is sustainment for division level, and their job is that because they are co-equal, right? It doesn't you know what's a what's a the joke? Bullets don't fly without supply, right? I've heard that one. Like there's it's really critical to to consider all those things and we don't have enough information about Russia's planning to know all of those details, but we're, it's, it's pretty clear to see from what we've been able to observe that they did too much. Ex- they, they expected to not need nearly as much sustainment as they did. And that has been a critical failure in their supplies because they were expecting just waltzing through Ukraine in a few days. And if they waltz mm-hmm. through Ukraine in a few days, they brought more than enough, Right. But now it's a right. months-long campaign, which is which is also brutally ironic because that's literally how Russia has won every war of evasion into their territory going back six centuries. Is that everyone underestimated how much time it would actually take to get through Russia, and they died because of the supply and sustainment issue. And it's mm-hmm. ironic that Russia didn't learn from its own victories. Yeah, the whole like never invade Russia in winter is now like. You know, Russia and invasion in winter is a bad decision. Yeah, period. It yeah, doesn't matter yeah. if you're invading or being invaded. And the whole argument, well, Ukraine's naturally part of Russia, is like, well, you're then invading part of Russia in winter. Good luck with that, folks. Yeah, yeah. I guess if you're Russian and say, and you think that Ukraine is Russian, then say never invade Russian in winter. You royally fucked up your own calculus. Absolutely. On that one. Yeah. It's your slogan. <laughs> Absolutely. So. No, it's been interesting to watch for sure, though. But I think there's definitely lessons learned, and the plenty there's plenty of pogues that I know in the military side who are like, ah, eh, that's why I have a job, right? That's great, right? So no, that definitely it definitely makes things interesting to see, and and especially because like I, you know, it definitely like, and you can probably speak better to this than I can, but like that, you know. And, uh, and, you know, when you have plenty of food, your morale is always a lot higher. It's when you start, you know, with that first basic need, the lack of food, your morale is going to tank really quickly. And, I mean, you saw that after a week that, you know, when Russian soldiers would get captured, there were just video after video after video of them just stuffing their faces. So it's like even for after just a week, it was like, holy cow, did they not plan for more than two days? Like. That's that's you know that's a pretty significant gap in in you know at least having uh, available food sources and it makes you wonder at what level of preparedness or what level of hierarchy did that did that um that fallout happen and you have to think right just again and I'm not a, not an expert in 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 military command and everything by any stretch I do know my fair share but I don't know I'm not 
a global expert by any stretch. But you have to imagine that it's probably it was at a very high level that these mistakes were happening because it's a systemic issue. It's not that one or two brigades or one division of Russian fighters um, went down or stopped fighting because of sustainment issues. It's that literally like their entire major offensive along their northern front ground to a halt. And now they're to the point where they're now trying to rebrand themselves as like they're doing an Eastern front only and they're abandoning, they abandon their assault on the Ukrainian capital. Like that's, that's that, that level of, of redirection because of major issues can only happen at very high command levels. And you go back to like, you know, Vietnam and second world war and even the first world war like when those major campaigns failed it was because of decisions at the top that were then trickled down as opposed to lots of simultaneously bad decisions happening at the bottom coming up and again we don't have a lot of evidence to suggest that we don't have the definitive proof we don't have you know putin's emails uh yeah right. your emails lock him up right but um we predicted that like he's sorry. locking himself up we I predicted know, that two weeks ago that he would rebrand it and just go for that east and you know i think about we call in america we call what you're talking about the blob and we talked about that in afghanistan and how it collapsed so fast in afghanistan was the fact that we removed the blob before our forces and russia has a real poor blob i guess their infrastructure their supply chains just they they weren't very quality and now they're stealing aid food that's supposed to go into these towns they're they're stealing it for themselves so yeah there's a desperation in the russian army but they still have the 10 to 1 odds you know I know it's it's really interesting to see. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna sit and try and again it it feels kind of crass to think about this and 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 not think about the empathy for the Ukrainian people. But like they they are going through some real rough stuff right now. And it like you said, it's even rougher because not only like it, it not that it wouldn't be rough if the Russians did their job properly and you know were able to completely destroy Ukraine, right? That would be terrible. But mm-hmm the reason for their suffering in this particular case, because in many cases, the Russians were not properly prepared. And now they're right. going through and thinking, Oh crap, we actually needed a lot more support in order to properly occupy and hold the city. Like now we're going to start murdering people. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's, there's all kinds of things that happen as downstream effects of when you don't properly plan things out. And that's, you know, the, the reason why we were able to become a global superpower after the second world war is because we just devoted our entire economy to winning the war and we had all the supplies we all had all the logistics we were able to prepare we timed things properly and one could even say in certain certain campaigns were too cautious and Mm -hmm. too well prepared in order to be effective Mm -hmm. but then if you especially look at the pacific campaign look at guadalcanal iwo jima uh pelilu these these campaigns that took weeks when they should have taken when they were expecting to take days because they had proper supply chains they were able to continue the offensive right Mm -hmm. um and you know the decision to drop the atomic bomb was all based mainly on supply chain and, and casualty rates. Right, we were not going to be able to sustain a, grant, a land invasion of, of Japan by manpower or supply for months, if not years, at the end of the Second World War. So that was what ultimately tipped their decision. So it's it's really critical for us to acknowledge and accept that, and uh, but also to be empathetic to its actual impact on the ground, on the people who are just trying to live their lives, just trying to farm their wheat, and just trying to be 21st century ladies and gentlemen uh, and everyone else right just wanting to vibe and and another country's like no no we're going to ignore all of human history and dominate you because you belong to us because you never did 
but we don't care. It's it's been really interesting to see that dynamic. It's even harder right. to have empathy for the Russian soldier that doesn't want to be there because they didn't know this was what they were going to do. There's some really bad Russian soldiers out there, like indiscriminately bombing civilians. But there's a lot of good people that didn't intend on this that are just trying to get out of mm. it, you know. And that's that's a that's a shitty thing to have to deal with at the same time giving empathy to your attacker, you know. But these mm-hmm. are these are 18-year-olds. These are young young people killing babies. And and somebody's having them do that. We got to remember that. It's not the soldiers as much following. They're just following orders and I don't I don't know. It's like also I mean there's the war crime session, but also like the most of their army is following orders to go in there. And like, mm-hmm. you know, the, the Russian casualties are definitely really high, but you're absolutely right. There's a lot of conscripts who are just coming in and just not even seeing combat. They're just being flung into the, the, the rural parts of Ukraine without adequate supply and out adequate understanding and, and kids getting captured, 16, 17 year old kids getting captured and calling home. We see the videos of them being like, we didn't know where we were going. We we're just told to do this direction. And then we found ourselves in Ukraine. Now I'm captured and I'm lost and I want to come home. It's like, yeah. You have to have empathy because you think, you know, I wouldn't want to be in that position. Um, right. And it, you know, it, 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 it kind of, it, it makes me reflect on the JFK quote from back at the height of the cold, one of the heights of the cold war. He's like talking about the iron curtain and it's, it's a paraphrase, like say what you want about um, capitalism and our culture. And it is not without sin and it is not without flaw by any stretch, but we've never had to build a wall to keep our people in. Right. And I think that's kind of the same idea as like the, the, the Americans, even throughout the original Afghanistan and Iraq campaigns, which were, you know, controversial at, at the, from the beginning, but even during the surge, we never had a shortage of people who are willing to sign up because at the very minimum, they trusted that certain things were going to go right. Did they go right all the time? Absolutely not. Were the, were the, uh, the reasons for us being in those locations justified? That's a big conversation for another day. Right. But at the end of the day, right. We did not have to forcibly conscript hundreds of thousands of underage men just to fill the ranks to fulfill these certain desires. We had a sufficient standing army to fulfill the goals of the country. And it's, it's kind of a testament to our ability to do that in our society as opposed to what Russia's been trying to do. Do you ever think that the legacy of the Middle East would be soldiers suffering from the effects of burn pits? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Again, I, I, I know a thing or two about that, and it's the, the, the number one challenges that we're facing right now are the long-term effects of you know not just the PTSD and the suicide and the, and the mental health of the, the, the trauma and everything, but we got really good at the fighting, but there are definitely shortcomings that we've had to deal with on the, and, and the, the long term. We, we, we have a trouble of like we have a, a, our trouble in, in our society is that we can't do the long-term finishing stuff really well and that's why i'm a little concerned about with going back to covid you know how are we going to like make sure that covid doesn't happen again to the best of our ability how are we going to make sure that these things continue to carry forward right we're very good at we're very effective at mobilizing for an immediate crisis but how do we do at year 15 year 20 right Right. that'll be interesting to see and yeah that's what we're facing with the 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 burn pits and everything in afghanistan Uh, i think the major legacy is going to be while we were building up while we were dumping a lot of money into the middle east for stability uh china was dumping up that just as much money if not more so into developing sub-saharan africa and southeast asia that's right and now that's going to face the new socio-political dynamic of the next 60 70 years is going to be 
how are we going to navigate this co-superpower relationship with China? Because they are really on par with us, in some cases superior than us in terms of their their breadth and their, their strength and their abilities. So how do we navigate that while also navigating systemic issues like climate change, emerging infectious diseases, healthcare access? It's going to be very interesting to see. And uh, I hope that you guys will do another 750 episodes to cover that time. Yeah. Be fun. I got to worry about space. Russia and China are combining their efforts to create a space station. We're going to be locked out of space soon, you know? <laughs> space Force. Space Force. <laughs> so this is the awkward time when I ask you guys for a just the tip, something um, to better somebody's life. And I'm going to let Jeffrey start so that Dan can have a running start at his. you have any just the tips, Jeffrey? Oh, just the tip. Um Let's see. Uh, when playing Metro Exodus, uh, definitely make sure that you stock up on as much uh, materials as possible to make ammo and clean your weapons. Uh, because let's let's be real honest, Metro is a really fun game, and most people don't tend to think about like figuring out like how you're going to be able to sustain combat and it's kind of funny because like as i've been playing metro exodus and looking at how things have gone in ukraine i'm like man this this there's something about this that feels a little too like close real right to what's happened and so like you know resource management is really important in the game and being uh, making sure that you have the resources that you need to sustain the fight is really important in metro exodus but just in general my just the tip is you win every argument you walk away from. How about you, Dan? Uh, I'm going to stick with the video game theme a little bit. Um, if you have a VR headset and you play games on that, make sure that you are hydrated before you start playing. Because then, first of all, it's not just like it could be tiring on your body, but also making sure that you stay hydrated helps with your balance and helps because, you know, after you play VR for 45 minutes or an hour and you take the headset off and your head is swimming, you're less likely to be nauseous if you're well hydrated beforehand. So if you're going to go do fun things that completely surround your sense of sight and hearing and everything with a wonderful VR headset, make sure you're taking care of yourself. I love you guys. I love you guys. Take care, guys. Have fun. (laughs) To those who would tear we will defeat you. This is our moment. This is our, this is our time. To those who to those seek who peace, peace and security, security, we support you. Yes, we can. And to all those who have wondered if America's beacon still burns as bright, tonight we prove once more that the true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our arms or the scale of our wealth, but from the enduring power of our ideals, democracy, liberty, opportunity, and a yielding hope. Let me tell you something, you already know. How would
Public Access America. Yes, we can. Sunday live streams on YouTube. I wanted to run out of that tunnel for my dad. On Twitter. Apple Podcasts. Stitcher Smart Radio Public. And Spotify. Yes, we can. Public Access America. History in the making. Making history in the making. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.